Welcome to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Now, we have a bumper episode uh, this week where there's lots to talk about. We're going to be looking at a glut of voting intention polls on the eve of the local elections. What do they tell us about the state of the main parties in Westminster? We're also going to be looking at Amber Rudd's resignation and what do the public think, but what do they think about immigration more generally? Um, It does appear that the public's um, opinion on immigration is a bit more nuanced than we might first have thought. We're also going to to be looking at some numbers about Donald Trump's impending working visit to the UK. We know that the public don't like Donald Trump that much, but what do they think about him visiting as US president? And we'll also find time to explore um, the local elections on Thursday and what we will be expecting, what we should look out for and what the um, political weather might look like um, after the weekend. Um, For those of you that may or may not have uh, listened to last week's episode, it's worth rechecking. I I interviewed Colin Rawlings last week on uh, his perspective on the local elections. And we're going to be looking into some analysis by Steve Fisher later. So more on that um, later on in the show. Um, But to go through all the numbers with me, I have my podcaster in crime as usual, Leo Barassi. Leo, after a short hiatus, welcome back. Hello, Kieran. It's good to be back. And it's good to have you back, Leo. So let's let's go through um, some of the latest uh, headline voting intention numbers, um, because that's what we do. So Ipsos Mori have the Conservatives on 41, Labour 40. YouGov have two polls out, one that has um, the Conservatives five points ahead, 43 to 38 over Labour. One more recent over the last couple of days that has um, the Conservatives four points ahead, 42 to 38. And we also have a voting intention poll from ICM which has uh, the Conservatives on 42, Labour 39. And uh, Comrades have had one out that shows both of the major parties on uh, 40 points. And and both those ICM and Comrades polls done over the last weekend. So um, a mixed but reasonably stable pattern, Leo. I mean, what do you make of some of these numbers? Yeah, I think the characterisation of mixed but stable, I would agree with. I think you could just about argue that uh, a couple of weeks ago, the polls had narrowed slightly and it was closer to parity. And now they've moved slightly in the Conservatives' favour. But I'm not sure that you could put that much confidence on that. It could well just be uh, different agencies reporting and uh, randomness in the sample. Um, I think one other thing to draw out there is that as well as the Conservatives being slightly ahead, I think you can plausibly argue that the Lib Dems numbers have been gradually ticking up a bit. Um, I think it's it's no, no longer true, but they had uh, six polls uh, consecutively that put them on eight points or more, which as far as I can tell is the first time that's happened since May last year. So not not earth-shatteringly good numbers for them, but just a little bit better than they were doing before. Um, And actually, we've also had a BMG poll out today, uh, which gave the Tories a one-point lead, 39-38, and gave the Lib Dems uh, 11 points, which I think is their highest vote share since the election, um, as far as I can see. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how if, if that continues. I suppose what the Lib Dems feel like they need to me is a, is a good by-election where they really sort of would take a seat or overperform because they, they, do, they do seem to be struggling for, for airtime. Um, I, I guess that's just the nature of their position in Parliament at the moment. Um, one thing that stuck, uh, struck me looking at some of these voting numbers cause I, was um, the Labour vote because I, I was curious as to why some pollsters had, uh, mainly UCO, it should be said, um, have a sort of four or five point conservative lead, whereas others don't. And interestingly, one of the reasons, it might not be the only reason, but a a plausible explanation at least for why that is, 
is the um, ability of Labour in some of these polls to hold their vote from 2017. So what do I mean by that? Well, one of the cross breaks you can look at is what the um, voters from 2017's general election for each respective party are doing now. And in the YouGov poll that had um, Labour uh, four points behind, Labour were only holding on to 83% of their vote from 2017. Whereas in contrast, let's take the Comrades poll, for example, which had the parties neck and neck. Um, Labour were holding 92% of their vote. And, you know, just to prove that isn't a sort of coincidence, the ipsos Mori poll that has um, granted um, the Conservatives one point ahead, but really statistically, you know, at parity with Labour, um, Labour were holding 93% of their vote. Now, we should say that you would never in any of these polls expect any party to be having 100% of their vote, uh, holding 100% of their vote from the last election. There's inevitably going to be churn for all sorts of different reasons. And similarly, we do see that with the Conservatives, they're holding about 90% you know, and, and above of their vote. So the difference between pollsters or between everyone else and YouGov seems to be how flaky or otherwise the Labour vote is. And that, that was really striking to me because it's very rare you see a kind of real hard hard explanation as to what's behind these numbers. Now, for me, Leo, there are two explanations, right? One of them is that, okay, the Labour vote is a bit flaky and that's a worry for Labour. For me, I feel this is a reason for Labour to be a bit more optimistic about the fact that they might be behind in some of these polls. In that, you know, it would suggest in a, in a, if, if a general election genuinely did happen then they would find it reasonably easy to boost their numbers purely by just retaining their vote from 2017. But, but what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, this obviously fits with some of the stuff that we've seen before, where we've seen a lot of 2017 Labour voters saying that they, for example, prefer Theresa May and Philip Hammond to Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonald to run the economy. And we've wondered whether that means Labour is going to be losing those voters or it's proved that the economy question doesn't really matter because uh, uh, just a year ago, these voters uh, did vote Labour despite thinking the same. So uh, I think it's, it's sort of a conundrum that it's difficult for us to... Uh, to be able to to give her a, a a clear answer to, but I think there's a more important sort of bigger point, and we shouldn't get too caught up in in that question. Which is, even if Labour is ret retaining 92, 93 percent of its vote share and is therefore uh, somewhere somewhere around parity with the Tories, that's still not a historically good position for an opposition party about a year after an election, uh, as as we've seen before. Um, parties that go to win subsequent elections tend to be moving quite far ahead of the government from around a year after the election. So uh, I feel like we're quibbling over relatively small details where the headline picture of the relative positions of the parties isn't on the basis of historical polling particularly good for Labour. And I suppose another way of looking at these numbers is that, you know, partly the the Conservative vote does seem to be rock solid at the moment. Um, I guess Labour will want to understand not only how they can hold their vote from 2017, but how they can grow it. Um, and you would imagine that some of that has to be from Conservative votes, given the fact that, you know, the, the combined vote share of the two main parties at the last election was above 80%. Um, so you know the strength of the Conservative vote, given the, the debates around Brexit and what type of Brexit we should have, it is is striking um 
but again, I suppose it does feel, feel like feels like we have these two tribes now, doesn't it? And and it's going to be who can get their who can keep their tribe together is likely to benefit in the longer term. I don't see any party breaking fifty percent, for example. It feels like there's going to have to be, the next general election result will be you know forty four thirty eight or something for the winner. I don't think they're going to be going above forty five fifty percent. I don't know. I'm just not sure that you can say that on the basis of what we've seen at the moment. I mean, either party could change leader. We've seen that a lot of the voters of both the parties aren't particularly enthusiastic about them. If one of the parties was able to present a much more popular issue than it has at the moment, then I don't see why you you can look at the current situation and not expect that they could uh, become a lot more popular. I mean, for example, one of the things that I noticed in the Labour um, or in the, the Mori poll, which uh, you've introduced, was 41 Tories, 40 Labour, so effectively parity, is that Corbyn's satisfaction, dissatisfaction rating um, is, is frankly poor. Uh, it's minus 27, so 32 satisfied, 59 dissatisfied. And that's a, a drift down to six points net from last month. Comparing that historically, I just pulled out a, f- a few numbers to sort of benchmark that. Uh, uh, Miliband early 2013 was on minus 16 so Corbyn on minus 27 Miliband was minus 16 Cameron in early 2008 was plus 2 Michael Howard in late 2004 was minus 15 Uh, William Hague mid 1999 was minus 27 so Corbyn now is at about the same level that William Hague was at uh, around two years after that election now my choice of comparison dates there is fairly arbitrary. I've tried to pick ones that I feel are uh, sort of fairly consistent with how long Corbyn's been leader and how far he's been away from the last election. If I chose different dates, the result would be uh, the comparison would be different. But the point is, he is on not particularly good in fact quite a bad favorability score so um that and of course that's in a poll where labor has got a pretty good hit already i mean 40 percent in this day and age is is very good um so yeah i'm just not sure that you you can look at this and say well if labor had a more popular leader their uh, vote share wouldn't be higher because it does but, but then haven't like we seen to, to play devil's advocate on that haven't we seen in a general election campaign that when corbyn's been front and center and he's been out there on the campaign trail. He hasn't necessarily been a detriment to the uh, to Labour ticket. I mean, I, I take your point that his poll ratings have certainly slipped in the last couple of months, but um, you know, he didn't do too badly in 2017, did he? Well, as I recall, he was always less popular than the Labour Party uh, in the way that Theresa May has always been more popular than the Conservative Party. Now, I'm not certain that that was the case right the way up to the election, but I think generally he's, he's lagged the party. Now, sure, his popularity went up, but I'm not sure that it actually reached the levels that uh, popular opposition leaders have um, have reached. I think it, he looked good compared with his uh, his approval rating before. But um, and and you're right, the exposure to a campaign does does help him. But uh, yeah, you know, he's he's still not exactly reached dizzying heights of popularity among the wider public. Let's talk about some other numbers that I've noticed um, through uh, Comres which I think might also be a bit worrying for Labour. Um, so comrades have a series of uh, statements on an agree-disagree scale, and they've asked about the economy. So the, the, the question wording is slightly convoluted because it's two bespoke individual statements and, are, and the public are asked whether they agree or disagree. So in theory, that they could, in theory, they could contradict themselves here, but they don't seem to. 
So one of the statements is the British economy would be stronger if Jeremy Corbyn were prime minister. Um, 24% agreed with that. 51% disagreed. 25% didn't know. Um, another statement was the British economy would be weaker if Jeremy Corbyn was prime minister. Um, 46% agreed. 30% disagreed. Um, 24% didn't know. Um, and then there was, there was a whole host of other statements around the economy. So international confidence in Britain's economy is stronger with Theresa May as prime minister than it would be under Jeremy Corbyn. 47% agree, 30% disagree, 23% don't know. And on the flip side, international confidence in Britain's economy would be stronger under Jeremy Corbyn if he were prime minister than it would be under Theresa May. 22% uh, agree, 52% disagree. So I guess if you were going to have a horse race there, you'd have 47% agreeing that the economy is stronger under May, 22% uh, agreeing that the economy would be stronger under Jeremy Corbyn. So, um, you know, the economy seeming to be a sort of conservative um, plus point in terms of their armory. Um, and we see a similar thing with uh, with YouGov, where the, 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 the Tories lead Labour by 14 points on who is best to run the economy to. But at the same time, um, is it the economy stupid anymore? Um, when we're, when uh, people were asked, which of the following do you think are the most important issues facing the country at this time? Please tick up to three. The economy, 26% chose that. It's only in fourth position. Behind immigration and asylum on 35%, the health care on 40%, and Brexit, Britain leaving the EU on 61%. So I guess that... Labour still has to contend with that economic trust problem that they always seems to plague them in opposition, Leo, but it's not clear that's the primary motivator for people going to the polls at the moment. Yes, I entirely agree. I mean, sort of referring back to, to our previous discussion just then, 19% or 19% of Labour voters disagree that the British economy would be stronger if Jeremy Corbyn were Prime Minister. Uh, so... Again, arguably, there's a lot of Labour voters who you might look at them and say, when push comes to shove, they're not going to vote Labour. But actually, I just don't think that that's true for the reason you just pointed out, which is the economy for a lot of people in the sort of the traditional sense of economic growth and stability and interest rates and that kind of thing is is the be all and end all of, of what they're after in their voting decision, that um, there's far more sort of cultural... Uh, values-based stuff that Corbyn brings. So whether or not people think that he is the most competent prime minister, the signal that he brings about what the Labour Party is for uh, is something that I think hasn't yet really been polled very well and very clearly, um, but uh, it perhaps explains this apparent contradiction. Mm. And one of the things I often wonder is whether trust on the economy is something of a proxy for competence as well. I mean, it's hard to really quantify or know that um, because, you know, what the economy means is several different things. And you've outlined some of them, you know, the interest rates, house prices, whatever it might, you know, um, whatever it might be. Um, but in, there's elsewhere in the in the YouGov poll, Theresa May leads Jeremy Corbyn on who would make the best prime minister by 10 points. So there is still that barrier. And there is still that sort of um, maybe not mountain to climb, but there is still that uh, extra work for Labour to do. Um, let's move on uh, to the big news story this week, which was the departure of the Home Secretary. I must admit, this um, it, it felt like it became inevitable over the weekend, but when the Windrush scandal uh, broke, I didn't foresee it, I must admit, um, leading to the departure of the Home Secretary. I mean, what did you make of it? Well, I suppose it's this slightly weird thing that happens whenever there's a massively controversial story relating to politics that... Um, the sort of the, the the public debate gets to the point where people are so angry they're looking for someone to be punished, and the person 
who will then be punished isn't necessarily the person who's responsible for the thing that everyone's angry about. Uh, they need to be linked to it, but essentially what happens is the bar gets lowered for misdemeanors of any other kind. So I don't think that the stuff that Amber Rudd did six months ago or even a month ago would have led to her having to resign. But once you get to the point where where people are so angry and feel like someone in government has to be punished, then I guess it sort of becomes unsurprising. And, you know, no one no one thinks that she was responsible for Windrush um, or that uh, her resignation was because of that. But, but yet it, uh, it sort of feels like, despite everyone not really thinking that, we've kind of accepted that she should go because it's connected somehow. Yeah, and it felt like she botched the whole crisis management aspect of this you know in terms of the drip 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 of things coming out although maybe there were there were people that had it out for her i mean what does, what does public opinion uh, think about this um so a couple of polls have looked at it so there was a, a yougov poll that had her uh was she right to resign 51 percent said yes uh only 19 percent uh, should have stayed in her job so uh that's a net 32 for right to resign uh, a Sky Data poll found pretty much the same thing. Uh, was she right to resign? 55% should she have stayed? Um, 29%, so uh, that's 26%. So sort of tw- plus 26, plus 32 kind of territory. Um, which, anything, I was surprised. I thought might be a bit higher. But um, I, I re- remember that a few years ago, I'd looked um, at this in past polls and looked at um, whether the public think that ministers should resign in various um, large and small scandals that have happened in the past. And um, I've compiled various sets of numbers. And one of the ones that stuck out to me was in November 2011, uh, Home Secretary Theresa May was under pressure to resign because of uh, a scheme to relax border controls for EU citizens at busy times, which uh, also relaxed them for uh, people entering Britain from outside EU. Um, and Theresa May was uh, seen to have been responsible for this. And uh, YouGov, November 2011, asked she resign and found a net plus 30 for should she resign. So it's interesting that Amber Rudd's score of plus 26, plus 32, was she right to resign? It's pretty much exactly what people thought about Theresa May in <laughs> November 2011. So I don't think the public were furious and outraged specifically about Theresa May, but I think, I'm sorry, about Amber Rudd, but there was a general sense that uh, some wrongdoing had happened and therefore it seemed that there was uh, doesn't seem to be much resistance to the idea that she yeah. go. And although like people are very quick to sort of um, play down the I don't know, the power of the lobby and the traditional press and that sort of thing, I do feel that there, there does come a moment with some of these things where um, the press is like smells blood and sort of expects um, something to something to give basically. And it felt like um, that that had to be um, that had to be Amber Rudd on, on this occasion. I wanted to move on though and talk a bit about immigration, um, public opinion on immigration more generally because this just got me thinking about. Um, the challenge we have when measuring public opinion on immigration. We all know that typically speaking, um, people think that um, immigration is too high, but there is always this nuance about um, opinion on immigration that needs to be teased out. So um, we've got the latest in a series of um, politicalbetting.com opinion surveys this week, which looks at immigration. And one of the, and two of the questions I want to bring up straight away, one of them was, um, do you think the government's current immigration policy is fair, unfair, neither or don't know? 24% think the government's policy on immigration is fair. 30% say unfair. So that's, I guess, a minus six um, 
if, if, if you were going to net those things. But 26% uh, say neither and 20% say they didn't know. So 46% giving sort of no no opinion, if you like. So um, I guess shows how, how tricky this is to, to poll on. Um, but where people had more of an opinion was on whether it was strict, not strict enough and so on. And we asked whether, um, do you think the government's uh, current immigration policy is too strict? 19%, one in five said too strict. Not strict enough, 49%, um, so almost half saying it's not strict enough. About right, 14%, so uh, not not a positive reflection there on the government's, uh, government's immigration policy, I guess. Uh, and don't know, 17%. So what we seem to have, Leo, um, and there are other numbers that we'll come to from other pollsters, but what we seem to have is a, 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 a sort of public opinion that isn't 100% sure about whether it's fair or not, but it does does think that it's um, it's not strict enough. Um, what, what do you make of some of that? Yeah, well, I think those two questions actually really well capture the public mood about immigration, um, which is, in general, people want less of it and want it to be effectively as strict as possible. Um, but they don't like it when it's done badly and when it wrongly catches up people who they think should be here. So uh, it puts the government in a pretty difficult position because uh, the, the logic is effectively to create a system that is harsh and tough, but entirely fair and doesn't doesn't catch people up wrongly and uh, as as we've seen with with windrush and i'm sure we're going to carry on seeing when uh, other groups of people come to light um, and in fact i think you've already seen some uh, some language tests for students that seem like they've been done unfairly and wrongly this is this is what happens when you try and do a strict system when for example you don't have id cards um, mm. and you have a government that doesn't want to spend much money on stuff yes and it does make us it does mean we rely on i mean it's, in a way it's like yes as the policy is important i want to come to that in a moment but it does rely on the home office and process doesn't it really um you know yes you want a, you want a firm but fair immigration system i'm sure that would poll very well um even harsh but fair might poll well but then you're relying on the processes and the, and the structures of the home office to get it right and not to affect people that um, you know, people that, where people would respond, oh, I didn't, I didn't mean that person. <laughs> I meant, I meant this other person. So, um, getting that right when we leave the European Union and with all the um, EU um, EU citizens that we have here already, oh, it's, it's going to be tricky. It's going to be a tricky one. But hopefully, the, the systems are more up to date nowadays. Um, what about the what about the policy it, itself? This hostile environment phrase um, keeps getting thrown around. I mean, it sounds a very mean spirited phrase, but then I suppose. If people do want a harsh and, and a firm system, then maybe it's not as unpopular as we'd think. I mean, what what do people think about this hostile environment? Well, we have this question about it in in our opinion opinion poll, which um, asked effectively um, sort of straight up: Do people like the idea of the hostile environment or not? So, I think the phrasing is quite important, as we'll come to government should actively try to create a hostile environment for illegal immigrants in the UK to reduce the number of people entering this country versus government should not actively be trying to create a hostile environment for illegal immigrants in case people that have settled in the UK are unfairly affected. And it was pretty much a dead heat. 35% yes, 34% no. 
So that feels to me like what happens when you try and reconcile these two things that we've uh, just been talking about. Uh, people do uh, generally want the government to reduce the number of people, but they don't want to do them to do it in a way that uh, un- that wrongly uh, affects people who shouldn't be affected. So uh, yeah, I mean that's that's the problem. They like the hostile environment if the hostile environment works, but don't like it if it works badly. And what about the opinion on? Um different political parties i think you had some other numbers out didn't they yeah so a separate uh, separate poll now uh, which is from uh, from yougov which uh, asked about people's views of the immigration stand uh, attitude of the two parties asked and asked separately um and uh, the conservatives people thought uh, 21 they were too strict 44 percent were not strict enough, 15% about right, uh, which I think reassuringly is fairly similar to the numbers we got about uh, the government's current immigration policy. Um, Labour, um, I think perhaps unsurprisingly, only 3% said they were too strict and 48% said they were not strict enough. So slightly more thought they weren't strict enough uh, than said the same about uh, the Tories. So Individually, it seems that people uh, are more likely to think that uh, Labour uh, are uh, too soft um, and slightly more likely to think the Tories are too strict. But still, generally, they think that the Tories are not strict enough. Um, it, instinctively, it does the story to interrupt, but instinctively, it feels like there's a real issue here to grapple with for policymakers, whether they're politicians or people in the civil service, which is that you know, really, are, are, are we saying actually that people are always going to think immigration is too soft they're always going to think that numbers are too high whether or not that you know matches their experience or not is a completely separate question so what you've got to try and do is satisfy people without ever expecting that number to ever be right so what i mean by that is should we ever really expect people to say yeah immigration policy that's fine now probably not right um maybe uh, i mean i can see how it feels like that in this this era where we've had a uh, large net migration for uh, or immigration rather for um, for a good few years, but I guess you could draw a parallel to crime. That I suppose if you asked people and said uh, an individual question, do you think crime is um, you know being dealt with well or not being dealt with well? You probably wouldn't get many people saying it's being dealt with well, but crime in terms of an issue on public's mind when they say what are the what are the issues that you think government should deal with has has really plummeted since the late 90s and that has been very much in response to the fall in crime yeah whereas so, immigration is number three on, on the yougov's list isn't it so right yeah, yeah and you know that that is uh with a lag and not perfectly but it is related to the level of uh, net net immigration so um were net immigration to be much lower, then I guess I would assume that um, uh, people's attitudes towards it would relax. Mm. And I suppose we're looking down the list on YouGov's list of issues, um, welfare and benefits, 11% put that in their top three. So um, maybe you could conclude from that that because it's not top of mind for people, people are generally satisfied with it, even though actually if you explicitly polled people on welfare, they would probably say it's unfair but it's not strict enough like immigration. So I suppose that th- those are two issues where you're probably always, when you po- so immigration and um, welfare are probably two issues where you're always going to find people saying, oh, you know, we're too soft, but maybe you should look at those numbers in conjunction with where they are on people's priority list to understand right. how, how actually, how, how people are genuinely thinking about them. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting. I mean, you know, I just mentioned crime uh, that has, I think, perhaps unsurprisingly been ticking back up. So compared with and this is on YouGov's numbers, compared with around a year ago, it was about uh, nine, 10 percent were putting it in their top three issues. Uh, recently, it got as high as 27 percent. So it's fallen a bit in the last couple of polls. But mm. uh, you can see how this does respond to, to stuff that's happening in the real world. So um, I want to go on to the local elections and get your thoughts on things there. But before we do, let's talk about um, President Trump. He's going to be visiting, is it next month, I think? Uh, I'm not sure if it's June or July, but he's very shortly going to be um, visiting Britain uh, for a quote-unquote working visit. So I've been looking at some of the numbers um, around that. One of the things that we do know is that Donald Trump is extremely unpopular in the UK, but I actually thought some of the polling on whether he should visit or not was a bit more um, generous to him than I maybe expected. So in the political betting opinion survey, we are thinking about the possibility of President Trump visiting the UK. Below is a list of the different types of visit he could make, going from the most formal, full state visit to the least. Please tell us which types of visit you would be happy to have take place. So a full state visit, Eighteen uh, percent back to that. So there was an explanation that said it was a formal visit by a head of state to meet the Queen, a state banquet, meet the Prime Minister and members of Parliament. So it did explain what a full state state visit was. Eighteen percent supporting that. Um, an official visit, twenty five percent supporting that, where the President would meet the Queen, the Prime Minister and members of the government, but a less formal and ceremonial and less ceremonial than a full state visit. And then a working visit, which is what is actually proposed, um, 25% chose that, where the president wouldn't meet the queen, um, but only the prime minister and members of the government. And then 33% said no visit at all. So I suppose um, broad support, I would say, for a uh, working visit, because I'm going to go ahead and assume that if people were happy um, with a, a state visit or an official visit, they're probably going to be happy with a working visit. Maybe that's a leap too far, but I think that's probably fair. Um, ICM asked a similar, the same question in a different way, which is very much blunter. Do you support or oppose Trump's visit to the UK in July? So it was July. Um, and then we had uh, support 33%, um, neither support nor oppose 33% and oppose 31%. So presumably a few don't knows in there as well. So um, whichever way you cut these numbers, explicit opposition uh, to Trump's visit to the UK stands around a third, three in 10. So... I guess the way to uh, to sort of um, interpret those numbers are there's a good chunk of people that do not want him to come, but it doesn't necessarily correlate with the much greater number of people, overwhelming majority, that don't like him. So I guess there's some people out there that just appreciate he's the US president and probably is going to visit. Yeah. So I guess I've got two thoughts about this. So one is a kind of methodological polling point, which is... Um, I initially, when I looked at our four-way question, where we have three of the answers that say, yes, I support his visit, and one that is, no, I don't, I thought that was skewing the responses towards I support. Um, But um, when I see that ICM question that you've just mentioned, uh, that was simply support opposed neither, um, so was more balanced in terms of the distribution of responses. He got pretty much the same answer. So I thought it was quite interesting that actually uh, it's not necessarily the case that having more answer, more options like that really um, depresses the the oppose option. Um, I suppose on the sort of what the, what this means and the the kind of the the so what about these questions. Um, as you say, he is really unpopular. Um, I think that is the salient fact here rather than that people are broadly comfortable with him visiting. I think there's a widespread recognition that it's 
or belief that it's right for the UK to invite over the US president because they're the world's uh, most important powerful country. Uh, but I'm still not sure that that means that it's therefore a good political decision for Theresa May to do this and that this is going to reflect well on her. I think his unpopularity is probably going to reinforce lots of things that liberal Remainers, uh, many of whom voted Tory in the past, don't like about Theresa May and kind of grudgingly like about Jeremy Corbyn, which is uh, his opposition to Trump's values. So if May and the Tories, as I'm sure they do, want to be able to hold on to uh, Remainers who remaining Tories, Remainer Tories, then I think this visit is probably not helpful, even if many of those people would have said that it's right that it should happen. It will be interesting to see if there's going to be, you know, if a working visit includes a joint press conference of some kind. I imagine it surely would, um, maybe not. Um, because, I mean, you almost imagine then the reverse of the Obama Cameron visit, don't you, where um, Cameron talked about being back of the queue, and I'm sure Downing Street would be quite keen on having Trump there uh, saying how front of the queue we are or how beautiful our trade deal is going to be or whatever. It hey, be. maybe, she, maybe she'll have a Love Actually moment and uh, um, reverse uh, decades, centuries of history. Maybe, or maybe they'll go running through the fields of wheat together. Who, who knows? We'll have to wait and see. Um, let, let's finish off with the local elections. Kieran, that's an image. That is an image, yeah. Um, let's let's finish with the local elections. Um, as I mentioned in the intro, um, people that are interested in this can look at, uh, I do recommend you go back and listen to the last episode of Polling Matters, which was with uh, Colin Rawlings from the University of Plymouth, um, which went into detail about the local elections, more detail than we're probably going to go into here. Um, it's about a 40 minute episode going into the nuts and bolts of it all. So if you're interested in a fuller briefing on the locals this week, um, do check that out. So we'll plug that previous episode. Um, but there has been some polling, some projections that have come out this week on this. So Salvation had a poll out at midnight last night, um, which looked at um, London and had Labour on 51, Conservatives on 31, Lib Dems 12, Greens 4, UKIP 2. I think the significance of that is that it's very similar, a uh, 20-point lead for Labour, uh, very similar to the YouGov poll recently, which had a 22-point lead, which the conventional wisdom, and Matt Singh's done a lot of analysis on this, so people should check out Number Cruncher Politics' uh, web, uh, website on this as well. Um, I mean, the conventional wisdom is that if that number was repeated, you'd probably see a very good a very good result for Labour, one of the best in decades, but they might not take some of their more ambitious um, uh, councils, such as Wandsworth and uh, Westminster. So, yeah, a very good night for Labour, um, but the Tories will have at least slivers of... Um, sort of uh, crumbs of comfort if you like in the capital based on expectation management more than anything really which they can which they can point to which i'm sure they will via the evening standard um not that i'm a conspiracy theorist um but leo i mean what do you make i haven't really got your thoughts on the locals so i mean what do you what do you make of it all i mean for me i feel like the local elections are really interesting to see um where votes are going not least i think the ukip vote as that can continues to unravel but um it's, it's 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 like a boxing match isn't it it's all about the spin beforehand and afterwards Right. I mean, it's absurd that um, uh, that we're in a position where you've entirely reasonably, because it's it's sort of established, um, set the test as uh, to Labour win Westminster and, and Wandsworth. I mean, it's sort of, you know, if, if you establish the principle of there being some kind of uh, uh, movable target and, and you start talking about the stretch targets, then there will always be a stretch target that 
um, uh, a party fails to win. So it's it's incredibly difficult to uh, to sort of say, well, what would be a good night? What would be a bad night? Because you know you can always uh, come up with things that a party might might have won or might have lost. I mean, I think um, the uh, the poll, the latest Salvation poll that you mentioned, again shows Labour doing extremely well in London. Um, I mean, as as some people have pointed out, uh, Labour doing well in, in London does suggest, given that it's not doing so well uh, relatively in the national opinion polls, it's, it's doing particularly less well outside London. Um, so I guess what we'll see is certainly, um, I think, extremely good results in London and probably slightly more mixed elsewhere. I guess very interesting questions to see how the Tories are able to do in quite remaining places where uh, they've been struggling. Yeah, and um, we've had um, a number of projections out, haven't we? Um, we talked about Rawlings and Thrasher, and people can listen to that episode. So Steve Fisher's uh, come out with some um, some numbers as well, hasn't he? Yeah, so Steve Fisher, um, a professor at uh, uh, Oxford University, uh, who um, does project projections regularly for elections, has uh, just today published um, his own projection and model for the local elections. Um, so he has a slightly different way of predicting, um, which uses, takes a slightly different approach from Rawlings and Thrashers. Um, and as well as the the numbers, which I'll talk about, I think his uh, his uh, article where he introduced it is really interesting and uh, worth reading. Uh, he writes at electionsetc.com, electionsetc.com, um, and it, it, what what he talked about in terms of uh, making a prediction is that. Um, he normally looks at the absolute change in party support. So um, is a Labour at four points and the Tories down three points? Um, the difficulty is this time that both parties are up compared to 2014 because of the decline of UKIP. Uh, so this time you really have to look at the change in the relative positions of the parties. Um, and obviously that means Labour and the Conservatives relative to each other. Uh, it also means the Conservatives relative to the Lib Dems. Um, and interestingly, he pointed out it's more uh, the Lib Dems um, battlegrounds are much more with the Tories rather than with Labour. Uh, so uh, that's the comparison that you need. Um, and um, what he came out with was a, a model that essentially said the Tories will pretty much stay where they are. Labour will gain about 130 seats and the uh, Lib Dems will lose about 80 seats. Um, and with, with, with wide with wide confidence intervals, it should be said. Yeah, with yeah. very wide confidence in intervals. Um, and uh, what he what he said about that is this is just really difficult to do. Um, I mean, as I said, so he looks um, he wants to look at um, how the parties are placed relative to each other. Um, but he made the point that in ninety four and ninety nine, respectively, the Tories um, had got a uh, small swing. Um, compared from uh, the previous election that was about the same size and actually the same size as they've got now. Uh, but in 94, they lost 10% of their seats and in 99, they gained 10% of their seats. Mm. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it's sort of, it's a nicely humble blog for uh, uh, to introduce a, a model. But essentially he says, look, you know, Compared with Rawlings and Thrasher, he's a bit more uh, optimistic for the Tories, a bit more pessimistic for Labour and Lib Dems. But he says, and I think you know, we've, I think uh, given given the 
uh, errors and overconfidence that that we've made in um, previous election podcasts. I think it's it's right to say that there's quite a wide range of uncertainty about this, and anyone who says this is what's going to happen, um, and particularly who uses that to set expectations, I think is is either wrong or uh, being deliberately misleading. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair to say. And it should, and we should note for listeners' uh, benefit, we'll um, there'll be a podcast of some kind on Friday going over some of the results. Um, we haven't quite worked out what that what that's going to look like, but uh, there'll be something um, either myself or my own or with Leo or Mike or whoever it might be um, just crunching some of those numbers um, but Leo thanks for thanks for your time today that's all we've got time for, for this week's uh, politicalbetting.com or at least the part one of this week's politicalbetting.com polling matters podcast um, big thanks to Leo for joining me as usual if you like what you hear please do share us as usual on social media Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn and all the rest of it and do give us a like or a positive comment on um, the, whatever podcast app you use to um, get this show it really does help get our name out there as I always say and uh, spread the word so we very much do appreciate appreciate that but for now thanks for listening and stay tuned for another episode later in the week and uh, we'll speak to you then